0: Welcome to the Mission of Truth Podcast, where Super Bowl champions Nick Foles and Chris Maragos dive deep into the trials and victories that are behind all of the lights. Here's your hosts, Nick Foles and Chris Maragos. Hey guys, this is Chris. And today's
1: show is presented by Compassion International. And right now, you can help be a part of a great program called Fill the Stadium, as there are 70,000 kids that are in need of basic essentials like food and water the typical things that you and I take for granted on a daily basis. So come join Nick, myself, and Compassion to help release children from poverty. To get more information, check out phillthestadium.com.
2: Our guest today is currently the president and CEO for Compassion. He has a deep love and passion for the beauty and potential of local churches, fulfilling their Jesus-given mandate to redeem and restore this world for his namesake. He was born in El Salvador and raised in seven different countries. Our guest has experienced firsthand the powerful impact thriving local churches can have on their communities, especially in under-resourced environments. Welcome to the Mission of Truth, Jimmy Mulado.
0: Man, total blessing for me, guys, and just appreciate you guys truly making faith accessible and just making it real so people can can understand there's love in this world for them and Jesus is the source of it.
1: Oh, absolutely, no doubt. So for those that don't know you, can you share a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and a little bit out of your upbringing?
0: Yeah, so I was born in El Salvador in Latin America. Uh, my parents uh, were Mexican in culture, but they happened to be born on the US side of the borders. So they had American citizenship um but and and my mom grew up in poverty. she uh was the daughter of migrant farmers, went wherever the work was, taught as a young girl how to keep a dirt floor clean, had one toy her entire adolescence wow. and um but she had love in her home and stability and she was a real adventuresome soul and so she met another adventuresome soul uh there in mexico on the on the border, right on the south south of the border. And he was an adventuresome guy, too. So they got married. And if you can believe this, they've been married 63 years. That That's good enough on its own. But they moved 41 times in the 63 years of marriage. So wow. we moved a lot. I'd been to six countries before I celebrated my first birthday. Grew up in seven, 26 different homes, eight schools before graduating high school, so mostly in the developing world, Nicaragua and Panama and, you know, Bolivia and Philippines, uh, El Salvador, of course, where I was born. And so it was an amazing upbringing. I thought it was normal for every family to move every year. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then I met my wife in like one house her whole life. I was like, I couldn't for <laughs> that at all.
2: Very different.
0: Uh, totally. oh.
2: oh, that's 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 amazing. I mean, Shoot, I haven't moved as many times as you have, and I've moved a lot, and it's quite an experience. And I mean, you get to see a lot of different things, which is a, a really fun part of it. But uh, I know when we were talking, and I think it was when you were in third grade, and I'm not trying to age you, you said it was 1972, it was. I believe. <laughs> uh, it was, all right, so my notes were, my notes were accurate, which is good. Um, you mentioned uh, you witnessed watching the Olympics. And what what was that like for you? because you you were you were an amazing athlete and still are. Um, but like I said, I might have <laughs> aged you a little bit, but you see.
0: or a lot <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, know I was in third grade. you know, I was a little guy in Nicaragua, a third grader, and that summer, I saw the Olympics, the Munich Olympics, and was just mesmerized by the thing. Of course, that was when the tragedy of the eleven. Uh, Israeli athletes and coaches were taken hostage and eventually all of them lost their lives. It was just a total tragedy. But the whole dream of the Olympic movement of of coming together in peaceful competition, just like it, it just like connected with my heart in a deep way. And I thought, oh, someday I want to go to the Olympics. So, um, and I started organizing events uh, at school recess started high jumping, long jumping, races, whatever I could. I just loved uh, all about track and field. And by the time I was in sixth grade, I was able to jump over my head. Uh, So high jump just made sense to me. Uh, And by the time I was getting near graduating high school, my dad thought, wow, it'd be better if we could go to the United States and maybe a school would notice you, maybe you can get a scholarship. And so my parents moved to Texas and, you know, God bless me with a wonderful senior year. And uh, I had marks that were comparable to Bruce General's world record performance in 76 in five of the 10 events. I had equaled his performance uh, roughly in those five events as a senior in high school. And that wow. caught the attention of uh, SMU, um, which was the second ranked team in the in the country. And that was just like about 45 minutes away from where I was living and decided to go to SMU. And uh, 1983, we won the national title, set the school record in the decathlon. And so everything was like going to plan. And here's one thing probably important to mention. When I was growing up in Latin America, my real name is actually Santiago Heriberto Mejado. And you call me Jimmy, because that's, that's just easier <laughs> to say. But I wasn't gonna say
1: name. that, Jimmy. There was no way I was gonna pronounce that right.
0: <laughs> so, so that was that. That's my real name. And Santiago's James. And then Jimmy came from James. That's how that's how that worked. But my parents wanted us to learn English. So they always sent us kids, me included, to American schools. But wherever I went to school, the Americans never thought I was American. So if I was in Nicaragua in the American school, they thought I was Nicaraguan. If I was in Bolivia, they, they thought I was Bolivian. So I was I was never considered one of them. I was kind of on the outside, but I so wanted to be an American because of my parents' citizenship, they gave me American citizenship. And so I I just wanted to leave that world behind, go to the United States, be successful, uh, because I marry an American and stay in America, all of that, And, and follow, you know, do the Bruce Jenner on the Wheaties box thing. I mean, that was the dream. And everything seemed to be going planned up through sophomore year in, in college. And uh, we had some, a couple of world record holders on our track team and I was learning the other five events that I didn't know very well, the shot and disc and javelin and stuff like that. And it was all on track. Uh, I wanted to like go to the Olympics, I wanna represent the United States, uh, that was the plan. And then tragedy struck in 85, um, uh, my senior year in college Uh, I was redshirted one year so I could get two senior years in uh, because it just takes a while to learn all these events. And uh, my first senior year down in the University of Houston, I took off in the long jump and the tendon behind my left knee popped and I flew about 20 some feet in the air, grabbing my leg. And then I landed on my one good leg in the long jump pit and twisted that knee. Oh my gosh. And I I couldn't even walk. They had to carry me out of the pit, take me to the, uh, you know, the medic and, you know, just work on the leg. And they finally, you know, they told me, well, you you tore that leg and you twisted that knee. Um, And so I tried to come back too soon. And just about four weeks later, I tore it again. And I was trying to come back soon because you got to qualify before you can go to the national meet. And we wanted to to win another national championship at SMU. And so I was really pushing to come back. And I just pushed too hard, tore the leg. Coach calls me into his office. And he said, hey, Jimmy, um, you know I've been watching you all these years. Um, uh, I understand your faith in God. And I just have one question for you. In light of your commitment to God and your work ethic, I don't understand how your God could let this happen to you. And I thought, oh, man, you know, I'm a, you know, 21-year-old kid, and and all I remember saying, and this is just forever embedded in my mind, I just said, well, coach, um, a faith isn't a faith if you only have it in good times, and these aren't good times, I'll grant you that, but my faith is my faith, and, um, you know, it is what it is come what may, and he said, well, I appreciate that. But, you know, we vie for the national title every year. Every scholarship's got to make a difference. And the trainers tell me that this is always going to be a weak spot for you. And I can't do the second year. I can't do your second senior year, you know, because of the red shirt. So you've gotten four years, got your engineering degree. Can't do that fifth year. I was devastated. This was like, wait a minute, God, that's not the plan. The plan was you know, Olympics. I mean, why did you plant that dream in my heart as a little third grader? And I wanted to represent the United States and be successful here. Wanted to leave the world I grew up in behind. And God just had a different plan. And and I I walked out of that office feeling like a total failure. Went up to the top of the football stadium and just bawled my eyes out. And then I got this interesting idea. I said, well, God, you're a healer, aren't you? You make this right. You can fix this. And so right there at the top of the stadium, I prayed over my leg. And I said, God, I'll give you the glory. This will be a great testimony for you. Just heal my leg. And, and, and you, know, let me, you know, let me be able to compete in the national track meet. And uh, so I prayed that prayer in faith. I went down to the football field and I took off running. And I tore it a third time. And uh, fell down. And it just, yeah. So I quietly closed that chapter of my life, and I thought my athletic career at that point was over. That was 1985. Two years later, I get a letter out of nowhere in 1987. The president of the Olympic Committee of El Salvador, where I was born, said he heard about my marks and he heard I'd been born there. And he invited me, he said, "Would you like could you represent us in the 1987 Pan Am Games?" And I thought, "Well, I never felt I was done with athletics at that point, but nobody was interested in in me at that point. And so I said, yeah. And I represented them in 87 in the Pan Am games, uh, but I tore the leg again in in the eighth event. Uh, I was able to wrap it up, do the javelin, which I didn't need the leg too much for that, and then just limp my way through the 1500 to retain my fourth spot and uh, so I got you know, fourth place there in 87. And then they said, well, um, we'd love to have you try to go to the Olympics, but here's the deal. We're in the middle of a Civil War. We only have money for six spots, all sports. Mm-hmm. So the like United States sends about 600 for all the sports. They only yeah, have six.
1: six. Oh my gosh. Six,
0: all the sports. So even if you qualify, we don't know, we can't assure you that you can go, but we want you to try. So I called my SMU coach up again. I said, coach, I got this opportunity, came out of nowhere. I got to go for it. I I, I just, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm done. And would you, would you let me come back to SMU and train with the athletes there and see if we can't figure out what's wrong with the leg and, uh, and give this thing a shot? So he said, yeah, come on down. So Uh I went back to SMU, trained there with you know another decathlete that ended up going to Barcelona in '92 and got ninth place. Uh, so he and I trained together. Billy Olson, the pole vaulter for the United States, he was training there, I was learning the pole vault from him, and so it was just a, a really good situation. Ended up qualifying and going down to El Salvador, had to do it there, and they ended up selecting me to go uh, as the only male track and field athlete. Um, you know, on the on you know for the country, placed 26 of the 42 that qualified there and was healthy, got through it. Wow. And but God used that. When I got back, the Olympic Committee president said this thing before I I, been, I went back to the United States. He said, Jimmy, all of our young high potential uh, young people uh, that are born in El Salvador, they never stay. They go to the United States or they go to Europe and and do a career. And they leave us behind. He looked at me and he said, please don't forget us. Well, wow. you know, guys, I, I think in my zest to want to identify as an American and be American and be successful. I wanted to leave that developing world behind. Mm-hmm. Um, God just had a different plan. And he used that injury and that humbling process to bring me back to El Salvador to have a guy tell me, come back. Don't forget us. And eventually that's what led me down the path to coming to Compassion, to serve kids in El Salvador and 24 other countries um, that are living in poverty and serving kids that are of the age I was when I was living in these places. And it's been fun to go back to my old houses as I visit these countries serving kids. But it's, it's a, what I get to do now to serve children in poverty is congruent in my soul at the deepest level. But he used my worst defeat to usher in a calling that'd be central to my life.
2: Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. You you shared, we're going to dive into everything you're doing um, with compassion in just a moment. But before that, you you know, so much of your life uh, is surrounded by your faith in Christ. And uh, the question I have for you is, can you share with us like where you came to that point where Um, You gave your life to Christ because we all have our our different testimonies where God's called us or, you know, we, we experience like that grace of Christ um, where it's just overflows and it it surrounds us. And um, we all have different journeys and there's even people that probably are in church right now that listen and think that they're doing the things right and they're religious and I'm a good person, all these different things, but that's not it. We, we miss the mark and we always will because we are sinners. We, We do fall short. And we do need the blood of Christ to be saved. So can you just share with us where where you came to uh, faith in Christ and how that came to be?
0: Well, I told you my parents moved all those times. And you'd think that growing up with that kind of instability would be horrible for a kid because it often is. I mean, you want to give your kids stability. But my life was super stable. And it really was uh, uh, really because of two things. Because of Jesus and my family. My parents. Uh, Walked with Jesus, uh, you know, from when they were young, young people, and so Jesus was like a regular part of my family upbringing and experience. And and I would say, you know, my family was my first church. That's how I look at it. Um, We would be moving around between countries, and I remember many times my parents would do family services because we were in between countries. We were in hotel rooms and we we're doing family services and they would have us do different parts of the service. I always did the offering. I love that part. That was the money part.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, right. I like that <laughs> part. That's uh, right.
0: Although I never understood it because my dad could give us kids money. We'd take the offering and he'd take the money back. I was like, what's up with yeah. that? <laughs> yeah,
1: <is> that right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh. anyway, he was, he was, they were modeling for us what it means to walk by faith. And uh, my parents, in all those years, went through all sorts of adventures. I mean, one of the worst valleys was my dad getting incarcerated by Manuel Noriega in Panama and the secret police, not telling him why. And for three days, we had no idea whether he'd come out or not. And he did. They let him go. But he gave testimony. The first time I remember my dad crying, seeing my dad with tears in his eyes, was when he gave testimony about how God was faithful even wow. in that prison cell, not knowing why he was there, not knowing if he would get out, but knowing that God was with him. So that's the kind of upbringing I had. And so at the earliest possible stage, guys, uh, when, when uh, my parents introduced me to the love of Jesus, I, I like accepted Christ into my life um, mm-hmm. and, and wanted him to be the leader and forgiver of my life. I was about six years of age, And that was just like normal. It was no big deal. I didn't remember often when I got, you know, a little older hearing people had these dramatic testimonies of how, you know, they made living this way. And then a big, huge turnaround and became to Christ and all of that. I'm like, man, mine's pretty boring. I like, (laughs) I just came to know Jesus because he was around when I was six years old in my family. And
2: that's beautiful. It's beautiful. It shows that uh the household and being parents is just such an amazing responsibility with you know our children. You know, Chris has, you know, three kids, I have two, and just representing Christ and you know, obviously reading the Bible with them, implementing like the stories, sharing with them the, the true stories of the Bible and what they mean, and sharing with them who Jesus is 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 so powerful. And that's your testimony. And it's beautiful to see a testimony like that. So thank you for sharing it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Jimmy, I think it's, it's super cool, man, just to hear your just your life experiences. They're just so unique. You just have such a uh, such a plethora of experiences that, that you've kind of gone through. How did you come to compassion? I know you mentioned a little bit about the adversities that got you to, you know, maybe the setbacks that God is leading us to something greater. How, how did you get brought to compassion?
0: Yeah, so after the Olympics, and by the way, one note on the Olympics, I, I went there for an athletic experience of a lifetime, 16 years of training total, and, and in many ways got that. But I came away with something more profound, and that was a calling to serve the church, and here's why. When I went to South Korea, I got to hear the story of, of the church revival that totally changed South Korea. And one of the pastors there, the world's you know largest church, came to the Olympic Village and he, he had a prayer meeting for any athlete who wanted to go. So I, I went and, and went to the prayer meeting and then he invited us to his church. We, and then I went to the church a little bit later, one of the weekends, and I heard the story of what God did when a group of people really surrendered themselves to the Lordship and forgiveness of Jesus. And And you look at North and South Korea started in the same place right after the Korean War, which by the way, is where compassion was started right after the Korean War. That's where compassion started, serving the world. Uh, But South Korea and North Korea are really different, you know, 60, 70 years later. Um, And I think a large part of that was because of what Christ did to transform that community. They went from just a few percentages of Jesus followers to like 26, 27% of the whole population Within you know less than two generations, it was amazing, and I just felt this sense of oh to be a part of a movement like that on Earth uh, would just be an amazing thing. And so that's when really I I, I sensed a, a a desire and a calling to to be a part of serving His Church um, here on Earth. So so fast forward, I get back from um, the Olympics, and I was an engineer by training. And my dad, you remember, I didn't get my business degree at SMU, and so my dad was pushing me, you got to get your business degree. So I thought, well, OK, almost to humor him, I applied to uh, one school. And I thought, well, if I'm going to apply to a school, well, why not Harvard? Uh, right. So I sent one application to Harvard, and I got accepted. So went there and was asked by a Jewish non-Christian professor there, a uh, fabulous professor, To write a case study on a church well that's bizarre because it's a business school uh so i wrote that case study and then that church spun off a church training organization which i joined and um and led that for about 20 years and then i came to compassion but here was what really uh took me to compassion because i was in a ministry serving the church in my calling i thought why am i going to leave um i i think i'm going to stay here but I was in a meeting. I was in a leadership team meeting and, and uh, together with the leadership of the, of the church. And they were saying that um, we're not reflecting diversity. Our community is changing. We're not. We don't have diversity in our congregation, our staff, volunteers, vocalists, and we have no diversity in leadership. And I'm sitting in the circle. <laughs> and I said, I said you yeah, know, now you guys know that my real name is Santiago Riberto Mellado, like I said earlier, and that I'm Hispanic. And uh, I mean, you know that, just to make sure you understand. Everybody laughed and they said, uh, and then one person next to me leaned over and said, oh, but you don't count. And I thought two things. The first thought was, I finally made it. I'm finally American. I'm finally on the inside. I'm not the kid that the Americans thought wasn't American. I'm finally one of the people on the inside. And then the second thought was more Holy Spirit haunting. And that was, and that's not you, at least not fully you. Why are you embarrassed about your upbringing? Why why do you not like Santiago and you go with Jimmy? You know, why do you not talk about your mom growing up in poverty? They didn't know. Uh, I've been there two decades. We didn't, I didn't talk about it much. They didn't ask. And so what is it about how I created you and and, and the circumstances around you coming into this world that you don't like? Man, that was real soul searching for me to get in touch with um, being fully embracing of who God created me to be, not who for many reasons I don't need to get into, I wanted to be. I wanted this life. I wanted this path. God had a different thing in mind. And that thought was the thought that eventually led me to compassion because the former president who I'd become good friends with, he said, I'm going to retire next year. And I don't get to vote. Don't get to be on the committee. But in my quiet time, I'm just saying in my quiet time, I'm sensing that you're going to be my successor. And And that really started the conversation. I said, well, Wes, you know, I'm called to serve the church. He said, that's precisely why I think it would fit. Compassion is a church equipping ministry. They just do it in the toughest regions of the world with the poor. Yeah. And for me, it was like, how good is God? I get to go back to the church of my youth. I get to go back to the countries of my youth and other countries and, and yes, my calling is to serve the church for sure, but it is now more focused to serve the church in these tough regions of unimaginable poverty, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the most vulnerable, the children around those churches.
2: Amen. Amen. It's, it's crazy how he brought everything full circle and God's always, you know, teaching us different things, different, different disciplines, different obediences through trials in our life as long as we remain faithful and just trust in him. And um, it's amazing what y'all are doing with Compassion. I sort of have a two-part question right here. Um, What can you share with our listeners that, you know, Compassion is doing right now? I know listeners can't see it, but I'm wearing Phil the stadium shirt um, for Compassion that uh, so many people have been um, working towards and praying towards. And then um, not only what y'all are doing, but how can people who are listening, uh, join Compassion um, and helping the world?
0: So about a year ago, we all know that the pandemic hit the world with a vengeance. Uh, March 11 was the uh, the the day, March 11, a year ago, when the World Health Organization declared COVID 19 a global pandemic, and then sheltering in place and shutdowns all across the world started. Well, when you think of compassion, think of three things: one, it's Christ-centered; two, it's church-driven. We only do ministry in partnership with an indigenous local church in these tough communities. 8,000 partnership with 8,000 churches in these in these 25 countries. And the third thing is that it's child focus. It's child discipleship. That child is at the center of all of our efforts in partnership with the church to remove any obstacle that could keep that child from realizing God, their God-given potential. So every church... Serves about 250 kids. So we get to serve about 2.2 million children, and they come to the church for the program. But if you're sheltering in place, you can't do that. So we had to one year ago completely pivot the ministry. Kids can't come to the program. We got to take the program to the kids. And so we did that. And uh, since then, we've remobilized about 100,000 of our frontline workers to really go and take the program to the kids and their families and really be in touch with their needs, spiritually, emotionally, physically, education. And so food really bubbled up to the top. It really did. Uh, When you're thinking, put yourself in their shoes. You're a day laborer. If you work that day, you eat that day. You don't work that day, you don't bring money and food home to the family so they can't eat. But now the government's saying, don't go out wait a minute here, if I don't work, I don't bring food home. So I either go out and maybe get the virus, give it to my family or I stay at home and I watch my family starve, take your pick. It's just a horrible position as a parent to to be put in. And so these churches that we support together with them and and supporters like yourselves and others stood in that COVID season gap. And this last year we've distributed over 12 million multi-week family food kits. Over 8 million hygiene kits, uh, uh, trying to connect with them, distance, social distance and all that, but still stay connected with them emotionally and spiritually to encourage them. Training around child protection, because it's so, you know, domestic abuse is up when everybody's sheltering in place, a lot of pressure and, 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 and pain and suffering. Kids are the ones that pay the most. And so we've done training around child uh, protection. So that's what we've done on the field side. But then on the funding side, this is where we had a huge challenge. So a year ago, every year, January, you know, February, we ramp up registrations because for the rest of spring and early summer, we have uh, kind of events, Compassion Sundays and concerts and conferences where we find a sponsor for each newly registered child and then they provide the funding through their monthly sponsorship to care for the kids. Well, we just ramped up 70,000 kids, registered kids in the program. And then we had 1,241 events canceled. Canceled. So that meant we were not gonna find them a sponsor. And typically it takes us 30 to 60 days to find them a sponsor. And now we weren't gonna have these events. Who knows when we'd find a sponsor. And we were confronted with a very serious um, uh, dilemma. And it was, I mean, do the math. 70,000 kids, $38 a month, 12 months, just for one year alone. That's a $35 million budget issue now. Wow. Where are we going to find the resources to cover these kids? The simple solution would have been to say, we are so sorry. We are so sorry. We didn't know that COVID was coming and we're going to have to unregister you. Come back next year and you can join the program. And we said, no way. We are not going to unregister a single child. We've committed to them. We're staying committed to them. We don't know how we're going to provide the funds to support you, but we are committed to you. We're going to make this happen. We have more options than they do. And Nick, you, Chris, and Nate Solder, and Kirk Cousins, and uh, uh, with Steve Stenstrom, the president of Professional Athletes Outreach, former Chicago Bear quarterback. He was just asking me, how's it going? I told him this very same story. And in that night, he went and Googled the average size of an NFL stadium, which was 70,000. It's actually 69,444. And then then Steve said, he just felt convicted. He said, these 70,000 kids, we got to take care of them. We're not filling our 70,000 seat stadiums right now because of COVID. But why don't we fill a different kind of a stadium? Why don't we fill a stadium that's going to care for the 70,000 kids during this COVID season uh, while they don't have a sponsor? And we'll find long-term sponsors for them eventually. It's what we do. But in this season, we needed some help. We needed people to stand in the gap. And so people stepped up, and one person said, hey, I'll cover 2,000 families. That was a million-dollar gift. Then then another professional baseball athlete, he said, well, I'll cover 2,000 families. More than that. That was north of a million-dollar gift. And then then it just started to snowball, athletes telling athletes in the pro community. And now 40 pro-athlete families have gotten behind this. And then their influence has really mobilized a movement around filling this stadium. And by God's grace, almost one year later, we're over 50,000 of the 70,000 seats filled and And the pro community has been leading the way uh including you two, so I just can't say enough for just living beyond yourself, caring for the poor, standing in the gap for kids who will never be on a podcast like this more than likely to tell their story and that's really the only reason I'm here is to tell their story
1: yeah and and it's great it's It's amazing to be able to to tell it alongside you and and to highlight some of the difficulties that they're going through. And, you know, we 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 look at COVID as, you know, potentially a, a bump in the road short term. But the ripple effects in these third world countries go for years beyond when we're going to go back to normal life because of the infrastructure and the things that we're all grateful and blessed to have. And so uh, it's amazing what you guys are doing. And well, I know I th- speak for Nick and I both and, and everybody that's involved with you guys. You guys do amazing work. And are truly on the front lines um uh, you know helping people all across the world in in impoverished situations and difficult situations, so it's just super excited and anybody that's listening right now on our show notes um you can check out ways to get involved um uh, to check out fill the stadium different different ways that maybe you would want to uh maybe be a part of this whether financially or just support wise or you can give your 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 time or your talent whatever that looks like. Um, there's a lot of ways to get involved uh, to truly make a difference so Jimmy, thanks for coming on before we let you go we got got a couple more questions that, that we got to ask you here because you know we we got an olympic you know uh, level athlete here you know n- <laughs> we we look up to you bro i mean in the training you do as a as a decathlete oh my gosh it's like you you truly <laughs> are the world's <laughs> truly are the world's greatest athlete yes. i mean nick yes. nick just sit, nick just sits back in the pocket and throws and that's stuff. all i
2: do that's all i you do know,
1: I, I usually, I usually just watch the balls go over my head and people score on me. So, <laughs> but, 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 but you're, you're jumping and running and hurdling and pole vaulting. I got to know what, what's your favorite event in, in, uh, in, out of all of them.
0: It's gotta be the high jump. It really, okay. it, it's gotta be the high jump, And Here's what's crazy about that. I was the second shortest of the 42 athletes and yet I won my group in the high jump. I mean, that was the highlight wow. for me because it got down to the world record holder, Daley Thompson of England and myself. And it was just the two of us. And the bar's getting up there, you know, north of 6'9". And uh, and we're battling it out. You get three attempts to, to make it. And so he missed, and then I missed, then he missed again. But the way he missed the second time, I thought, this guy's not making it on the third one. But if I don't make it on this one, I don't think I'm making it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting tired. And right. uh, so I, you know, and I, I've never really... It's through the whole life of athletics, I, honestly, I, I've never prayed for wins. I just never did. I feel like God's so much more interested in the inner world wins than the win on the scoreboard, the human scoreboard. Um, so I never have. But, <laughs> but I'm standing there and I said, "Oh Lord, this has been such a hard journey getting here." Daley um, Thompson's probably going to win. It's world record holder. He won the last decathlon in '84 and '80. You know, probably going to win this one. If I could just have this one moment, just if I could make this one jump, that'd be good enough for me. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so, you know, I looked at that bar and I was like, man, that thing looks high. It's north of 13 inches over my head and and uh and then, you know, I looked up and saw the ceiling of the stadium and I thought, man, I don't know the sta- ceiling of the stadium's high. That bar's not high. That's and, right. And uh, and then just went and jumped, and made it and, you know, wow. uh, ended up uh, you know winning you know my group in the high jump as that second shortest uh, athlete and uh, it was just you know a real moment for me and and you know being able to beat the world record holder in that event and a couple other events and having him you know come up and say congrats you know great jump and yeah uh, that was that was it that so it had to be the high That's, jump just because i was the you know almost the shortest
1: yeah. Limitation. Yeah. I understand that. That's pretty cool though. So what uh, I got to ask you, what's, what's harder for you, the 400 or the 800? Cause those are grueling races. Oh man. Well, those, those are grueling races.
0: I mean, the 400 now is just considered a sprint, you know, I, uh, exactly all out sprint. I used to love the 400 workout days. I'd call them my throw up days because uh, <laughs> it's all about pain. How much pain can you push yourself to get better at? Uh, right. so Man, I'm gonna make enemies here, but I gotta go with the 400. You know, okay, because it's an all-out. I mean, it's all-out, and you know, you 800's getting there though. No. They keep getting it better is. every year. 800's getting there, but I, I gotta go with the 400. Yeah. Uh.
1: I love it. I feel your pain. I ran the 400 too. And it's a love hate relationship in that, in that uh, event. Oh man. totally. It's, it's a doozy, especially that last 150 meters, you know, goodness. <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's just give it what you got. So, well, thanks for coming on, Jimmy. You're a remarkable man doing remarkable things and you have an amazing story. Thanks for sharing it with us today.
0: Thanks so much, Chris. And Nick. thanks so much for your testimony and for doing, taking this time, carving this time to talk about some of the most important things in life. Uh, and that's what's going on uh, in the spiritual realm uh, with Jesus and, what, and, and just the great news that God has for people. So I just want to thank you for that and also just for bringing attention to the kids that are living in terrible circumstances. Chris, you mentioned that um, vaccinations are plentiful here. They're not in the developing world. Let me put a number to that. In the developing world, the World Health Organization has said that for developing countries, only 0.3% Of the population has access to vaccines today. Wow. Point three. You know, we're talking about 250 million and 300 million, all that, um, trying to get to herd immunity at 60, 70%. They're at point three. So you're right. It's going to last for years. And so I encourage you go to fillthestadium.com. fillthestadium.com takes 500 seats to take care of one child and their family for one year. That's what one seat costs. So I just, Whatever you can give to help fill a full seat, a row, or a section, just ask you to just pray and ask God how he might want you to respond. Do nothing more or less than what God tells you.
1: Got it. Jobistadium.com. Thanks, Jimmy. If you would love to interact with Nick and I, please reach out to our social medias. Our Instagram is at Mission of Truth, and our Twitter is at M of T underscore podcast. We'd love to hear from you guys and any thoughts or questions you guys have or comments and thanks for tuning in.